welcome back to the Cory Doctorow podcast. I'm sorry I missed talking to you last week. I have a little PSA to explain why. I had a catastrophic hardware failure last week, and it was the best one I've ever had, which is a weird thing to say. I use a little framework laptop. That's the user serviceable laptop that even a fool like me can take apart and reassemble with just one screwdriver that comes with it. Anyway, this uses just like standard SSD hard drives. And uh, those hard drives apparently have this failure mode where rarely, but not never, the controller on the drive fails and then all the data on the drive is permanently unrecoverable unless you want to spend thousands of dollars going into a lab and like desoldering and resoldering the controller. So like all the data is gone. So anyway, that happened to me. No warning, drive gone. Now here's the good news. I'm a kind of inveterate backer-upper. I have two little USB drives. They're just SSDs in cases, the same drive as in my laptop, that I swap in and out of the mailbox down the road where I get my mail so that I don't have to get my home address to strangers. So, you know, a mile or two away. And uh, every Friday, I take the drive that's on my desk that I back up to every morning. And when I go to get my mail, I bring it to the post box and I stick it in the post box and I take the drive that's there and I bring it home and then I do another backup. So this crash happened a week ago Friday and it happened like two hours after I had made a fresh backup. What's more, one of my backup drives had like thrown some errors and I was like, ooh, errors in your backup drive, that's never good. I should get another one because they're only like 150 bucks for two terabytes. So I had just ordered another drive and it was sitting on my desk in the box. And so I had a two hour old backup and I had a new drive to move that backup onto. And because I use a flavor of Linux called Ubuntu, it was really easy. All the software is open and free, and you can just download it, including all the apps that I use. There was some, you know, configuration stuff around the edges. Some of that stuff doesn't get stored as user data. I only back up my user data and not the operating system. And so it took me a couple of days to get back up and running, but I did. I am, as you can hear, back up and running. I even managed to cook a Passover dinner last Sunday. It was an amazing success, brisket and hard-boiled eggs and haroseth and everything. We had 20 people over and we used the Judas anarchist Haggadah and it was really fun. So I managed to get all that done, but I didn't get a podcast last week. But this is a PSA for A, do backups, B, rotate backups on and off site, C, think about getting a framework laptop. Like I wasn't sure when my, when my drive died, whether it was the drive, I thought, wow, maybe my motherboard has failed. Now, frameworks have uh, upgradable motherboards and I had bought the motherboard upgrade like six or eight months ago and I had the old one lying around so I could just like open up the laptop and literally in 10 minutes as again someone with the butteriest of butterfingers just swap out the motherboard and put another one in and make sure that it wasn't the motherboard but the drive like wow so think about getting a framework. They've got a new gamer version coming out that's super fast. And oh my God, I just love this computer so much. It is my favorite computer ever. They've never given me anything for free. This is not a paid endorsement or anything. I do correspond with them because I'm a giant fan of theirs. But like I initiated the correspondence and only to tell them how much I love their products. And they seem like hoopy fruits. So anyway, if you're thinking about a laptop, consider a framework laptop. Whether or not you have a framework laptop, do a lot of backups. Anyway, so that's what happened. That's why I didn't get a podcast to you last week. The other thing, of course, that's been going on since then is this Kickstarter, which is about to end. It closes, I think, early Tuesday morning. There are about 3,500 backers. And I think the last time I looked, there were about 6,000 podcast subscribers. That means that a lot of you have not backed the 
the Kickstarter. Of course, many of you might just be ghost accounts or whatever, but I hope you'll consider backing this. Redteamblues.com. That Kickstarter is hugely important. It is going to be like the big bang that gets this new book, which is the first book in a new series going. And if it succeeds, like everything is smooth sailing for like two more years while this trilogy comes out. And if it fails, I am in headwinds for like the next two years. It really is not like a make or break, but it really is a hugely important factor to the future of my writing career. So if you're thinking of doing something to thank me for this podcast, for the columns, for uh, the books I've written, for my Creative Commons releases, for the photos I released, for the newsletter, this is the absolutely the best thing that you could do is go and back that Kickstarter at redteamblues.com. Now, the other thing you can do is come out and see me on tour. The tour is not yet completely complete, but it's getting close. I'm going to be in Chicago April 20th and 21st for the Stigler Center's Antitrust and Competition Conference called Beyond the Consumer Welfare Standards. So maybe I'll see you in Chicago. Then we kick off the tour on April 25th at Mysterious Galaxy in San Diego. Then I'm in Burbank on the 26th of April at Dark Delicacies. And then on the 30th, I'll be at the San Francisco Public Library with Annalie Newitz, May 6th and 7th. I'll be in Berkeley at the Berkeley Book Festival. There's another stop in there that isn't on the schedule yet. I don't know why they don't have a URL, but I think on May the 5th, I'll be in Menlo Park with Mitch Capor, founder of Lotus and inventor of the modern spreadsheet, talking about my book about spreadsheet skullduggery. I'm so excited about that. May the 10th, I'm speaking at the Open Source Summit, keynoting it in Vancouver. Also on May the 10th, I'm going to be at a bookstore event with Sean Cranberry. May the 11th, I'll be in Calgary for WordFest. May the 20th, I'll be in Gaithersburg, which is just outside the Beltway, for the Gaithersburg Book Festival. And then I'll be inside the Beltway in D.C. on May the 22nd for the Public Knowledge Emerging Tech event where I'm doing the keynote. On May the 23rd, the next day, I'll be in Toronto for a launch in collaboration with the West End Phoenix, co-hosted by Dave Bedini from the Rio Statics, along with Ron Debert from Citizen Lab and Nancy Olivieri, the whistleblower. I'm going to be in the UK after that. May 29th, I'll be in Oxford with Tim Harford for a Red Team Blues event. There'll be an Edinburgh stop in there as well. Again, that's not out yet. I don't know why. May the 30th, I'll be in Nottingham with Christian Riley from the MMT podcast. May the 31st, I'll be in Manchester with Ian Forrester, aka Cubic Garden. June the 1st, I'll be in London giving the UCL Peter Kirstein lecture for their computer science department. And then shortly after that, I will be doing a British library event with Martha Lane Fox, the Baroness of Soho, which is, I mean, I'm not a big fan of titles, but if you're going to have one, that's a good one. And then I'm going to close out that trip with a keynote at Republica in Berlin. So I hope you'll uh, consider coming to one or more of those events. I should have a big master post with all of those as soon as those last few details get filled in. As ever, if you go to pluralistic.net and look at upcoming events, you can see all of those details, links, and so on. And that brings me to this week's reading from doctoro.medium.com. How to make a child safe TikTok. Have you tried not spying on kids? Now, the uh, column opens with a dialogue between a congressman and the CEO of Shuchu. I'm not going to try and do their accents. Rep. Buddy Carter, Republican of Georgia. I want to talk about biometric matrix, and I want to talk specifically 
Can you tell me right now, can you say with 100% certainty that TikTok does not use the phone's camera to determine whether the content that elicits a pupil dilation should be amplified by the algorithm? Can you tell me that? TikTok CEO, Xu Chu. We do not collect body, face, or voice data to identify our users. We do not. Carter, you don't? Chu, no. The only face data you'll get that we collect is when you use the filters to put, say, sunglasses on your face. We need to know where your eyes are. Carter, why do you need to know where the eyes are if you're not seeing if they're dilated? Chu, and the data is stored locally on your device and deleted after the use, if you use it for facial. Again, we do not collect body, face, or voice data to identify our users. Carter, I find that hard to believe. It is our understanding that they're looking at the eyes. How do you determine what age they are then? Chu, we rely on age gating as our key age assurance. Carter, age? Chu, gating. It's when you ask the user what age they are. We've also developed some tools where we look at their public profile, then go through the videos that they post to see whether... Carter, well, that's creepy. Tell me more about that. Chu, it's public. So if you post a video, you choose whether to go public. That's how you get people to see your video. We look at those to see if it matches the age that you talked about. Now, this is a real challenge for our industry because privacy versus age assurance is a really big problem. Carter, look, look, you keep talking about the industry. We're here talking about TikTok. From the House Energy and Commerce Committee hearing on TikTok, March 23rd, 2023. In 1998, Congress passed the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, COPPA, which prohibits online service providers from collecting the data of children under the age of 13 without parental consent. COPPA is remarkable, first, because it is one of the very, very few federal privacy guarantees enacted by Congress, an exclusive club whose founding member is the Video Privacy Protection Act of 1988, passed by members of Congress panicked at the thought of video store clerks leaking their porn rental histories. But the other remarkable thing about COPPA is how poorly it is enforced. In this regard, COPPA is very similar to the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, the EU's 2016 landmark privacy law. The GDPR has many more moving parts than COPPA, as befits a general data protection regulation, but at core, the GDPR seeks to incinerate the absurd fiction at the root of commercial surveillance, namely that we consent to commercial surveillance by clicking I agree on long, unreadable terms of service. Under the GDPR, companies that want to collect, sell, or process your data need to explain themselves clearly. They have to tell you what they're collecting and how they plan on using it. What's more, they have to secure your affirmative, enthusiastic consent for each act of collecting and processing. For example, by asking you separately about each morsel of data harvested and each downstream use. These separate questions need to default to no. And if you simply ignore the whole process, that's equivalent to answering no to everything. Finally, the company can't punish you by excluding you from its services simply because you opt out of data collection. Take it or leave it is not a consensual process. Under this system, companies can't do mass commercial surveillance because no one wants to be spied on, and certainly not in the comprehensive nightmarish manner of tech companies, data brokers, and ad tech services. 
When you move around the web or increasingly the physical world, you are subject to thousands of acts of data collection, and that data is held indefinitely and processed in a potentially infinite number of ways. No one explicitly consents to this. Indeed, no one has the patience to review each act of collection and data mining in order to consent to it. The point of the GDPR is to say to companies, you claim that your users consent to spying and data mining? Fine, get that consent. Oh, wait, no one is willing to sit through a recital of all the creepy ways you harvest and use their data? I guess that means they don't consent. So you'll have to cut it out then. But every European knows that the GDPR doesn't work that way in practice. Instead, big tech companies have systematically subverted the GDPR with near-total impunity. The GDPR allows for data collection and processing without explicit consent if it is a necessity. For example, if you want a weather website to display the temperature in Celsius rather than Fahrenheit, the website might set a cookie in your browser so that it can maintain your preference as you move around the site. The commercial surveillance industry has turned this narrow exception into a blowtorch, reducing the entire consent basis for the GDPR to ashes. Facebook, for example, claims that its terms of service, which boil down to Facebook will spy on you from asshole to appetite and will process that data in ways so creepy it would make your eyes bleed if we explained it to you, that that's a contract with you, a promise that the company has made to you. Facebook claims that it has an obligation to you to uphold this promise and therefore it must spy on you. Facebook's GDPR ruse that we promised we'd spy on you and it would be unethical to violate that promise, stands out for its laughable stupidity, but the whole tech sector has spent the past seven years wiping its ass with the GDPR. Those surveillance consent pop-ups on every page? The GDPR says you should just be able to ignore them and be assured that your privacy won't be violated by the site. The EU's failure to enforce the GDPR also reveals a problem endemic to the whole project of European federalism. The EU treaties were drafted by neoliberals interested in furthering the interests of big business, which is why Margaret Thatcher was such an active supporter of the EU, and it's why the European Central Bank is designed to impose brutal austerity on its member states. It's also why EU member states are allowed to compete with one another to serve as tax havens for multinational corporations. EU members like Malta, Cyprus, the Netherlands, and Ireland all compete to offer the world's most rapacious companies the financial secrecy and tax evasion they need to erode the tax bases of other countries all over the world. Ireland is Europe's most efficient corporate crime jurisdiction. It may not have the showiness of Malta, where journalists who expose corporate crime can be car-bombed by mysterious parties who are somehow impossible to identify, but Even so, Ireland offers the world's most rapacious and lawless corporations a flag of convenience that allows them to maintain the fiction that all of their global revenues are suspended over the Irish Sea in a state of untaxable grace. Corporate tax evasion is a low-margin, precarious business. When your country's main export is corporate crime facilitation, it requires that you must constantly innovate new ways to osculate the cloacae of large firms lest they slither over to another country and set up headquarters there. By definition, a company that has arranged its affairs so that it can pretend that it is Irish can easily pretend that it is Maltese or Cypriot instead. One of Ireland's most exciting corporate crime innovations was defunding its police. 
specifically the Irish Data Protection Commission, the agency charged with enforcing the GDPR in Ireland. In a year when Ireland's data cops bestirred themselves to address a mere 17 major cases, their German counterparts managed about 100. Companies that fly an Irish flag of convenience have long insisted that this means that their GDPR violations must be heard in Ireland. Activists like Max Schrems have spent years fighting legal battles to have their cases against big tech heard in more vigorous jurisdictions, alongside Irish activists like Johnny Ryan. And even Irish enforcers eventually had to get out of bed, get dressed, and do something about big tech's open lawlessness. If the GDPR were enforced, companies wouldn't collect your data for commercial purposes, except in the narrowest of circumstances, circumstances so important and rarefied that they're willing to risk your impatience by breaking down the use into bite-sized pieces that are presented in a series of dialogue boxes that are so important to you that you actually bother to read them, instead of clicking anywhere else to make them all go away while you continue merrily along. The U.S. is a trailblazer in failing to enforce privacy laws. The EU has allowed tech giants to flout the GDPR for a mere seven years, while America has been turning a blind eye to COPPA violations since 1998. That's a quarter century of inaction. Go back to the top of this and re-listen to that transcript of Rep. Buddy Carter grilling TikTok CEO Shuji Chu. Now, Carter is a dunderhead, but he's a dunderhead in a way that illuminates just how bad COPPA enforcement is and has been for 25 long years. Carter thinks that TikTok is using biometric features to enforce COPPA. He imagines that TikTok is doing some kind of high-tech phrenology to make sure that every user is over 13. I find that you aren't capturing facial images hard to believe. It is our understanding that you're looking at the eyes. How do you determine what age they are then? Chu corrects the Congress underhead from Georgia, explaining that TikTok uses age-gating, quote, when you ask the user what age they are. This is the industry-wide practice for enforcing COPPA. Every user is presented with a tick box that says, I am over 13. If they tick that box, the company claims that it has satisfied the requirement not to spy on kids. But if COPPA were meaningfully enforced, companies would simply have to stop spying on everyone, because there are no efficient ways to verify the ages of users at scale needed for the general operation of a website. It's telling that Carter can't imagine that this is even possible. Instead, he assumes that TikTok, and presumably its rivals, do incredibly invasive biometric data collection as part of their privacy compliance. This is an idea so stupid that it is what the physicists call not even wrong. There is no way that Congress's legislative intent with COPPA was to force companies to spy on everyone, including people under 13, in order to make sure that they weren't spying on kids under 13. Just as the intention of the GDPR was to reserve commercial data collection and processing to rarefied instances where there is a legitimate user-serving need for it, Congress's intent was to head off the routine collection and processing of data, period. As Chu explained to Carter, the company can offer a broad range of services to its users, quote, locally on your device. And the data needed to offer those services can be, quote, deleted after the use. For example, TikTok could store the list of accounts you follow on your device with an end-to-end -end encrypted backup on its servers so that you can use multiple devices to recover your subscriptions when you lose or break your device. Your device could request those users' latest posts from TikTok, without TikTok retaining a log of those requests after it fulfills them.
TikTok could suggest posts to you by having your device compile a list of keywords and other characteristics from the videos you interact with and then request more videos that match those criteria. Again, without TikTok logging those requests on its central servers. Doing so would limit TikTok's profits. And that's the point. COPPA weighs private profit against the public cost of data collection and processing and puts its thumb on the scale for the latter. Like the GDPR, COPPA has some escape hatches. Under COPPA, firms can collect under-13s data without parental consent. Taken seriously, that's a high bar to hurdle. How do you know if the person you're hearing from is really a child's parent or guardian? Plenty of institutions could make this work, though. Schools, libraries, and pediatricians wouldn't find this particularly difficult. But fast fashion brands hoping to get 12-year-olds to splash out for Ayn Rand-themed pre-distressed t-shirts? Their profits would have to take a backseat to a kid's right to a private life. America has plenty of onshore tax havens. Delaware, Nevada, South Dakota, and Alaska for starters. But these states aren't the reason we're not enforcing COPPA. The reason that your kids' lives are under a commercial microscope from the instant their newborn fingers brush up against a screen is that the all-powerful American business lobby will not permit the enforcement of our existing razor-thin privacy laws, nor the passage of new muscular laws. As David Cohen, CEO of IAB, the commercial surveillance industry's main lobbying body, told his members, extremists are winning the battle for hearts and minds in Washington, D.C. and beyond. We cannot let that happen. Cohen's co-conspirators at Privacy for America, an anti-privacy corporate lobbying group, told Congress that the, quote, responsible data-driven surveillance industry saves Americans $30,000 a year. Put another way, this trade body is boasting that its members steal $30,000 worth of data from every single American every single year. Of course, the claim is absurd as Privacy for America's Orwellian name. As Julia Angwin points out in the New York Times, that number is pure fiction. But whatever price tag you put on the data that is non-consensually harvested from all of us, it adds up to hundreds of millions, and some of that money is laundered into the official U.S. government policy on privacy. Don't enforce our existing laws, and don't pass any new ones. The most remarkable thing about Carter's laughable interaction with Chu isn't his conspiratorial ideas about pupillary dilation. It's that it took Cold War 2.0 to get Congress to finally make some movement on privacy. But don't get too excited. Both the GOP and establishment Democrats aren't interested in protecting your privacy. Rather, they're interested in protecting your privacy from a single Chinese-owned company. If we want to protect Americans' privacy, we'd pass a federal privacy law with a private right of action and slam the door on all commercial surveillance. After all, the Chinese government doesn't need to extract our data from TikTok server logs. They can just buy that data in the same marketplace that Google, Meta, and every other large business in the world shops at. All right, thank you very much. I hope to see you on tour. I hope, again, if you haven't backed the Red Team Blues Kickstarter at redteamblues.com, that you will consider listening to this podcast and then running, not walking, over to your web browser, typing in redteamblues.com and backing that Kickstarter. It really, really makes a difference. There are a few highly leveraged moments in the career of a writer, and the launch of the first book of a new series is one of those moments where the things that you do in this moment make a huge difference for years to come please do consider backing that Kickstarter. And I'll talk to you next week. 
You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.